0: We turn this evening to the book of Exodus, chapter 12, Exodus chapter 12, and I want to read a portion with you, beginning at verse number 21. I bid you all welcome also, as has been done, and we're glad to see you here tonight, and those online as well. We pray that the Lord will be with us and touch our hearts as we gather before Him, and that we'll know His presence and His blessing in this time around the word, So, Exodus 12 and the verse number 21. Before we read these verses, we will bow together and pray, look on to the Lord for help. So, let's all just keep our Bibles open there at that page and uh, let us bow in prayer. Father in heaven, we come unto thee again. We thank thee for thy presence with us and for this opportunity of gathering around the word of God. In the final part of this meeting, we pray for the help of the Spirit. We pray for that divine assistance that Thou dost give. Lord, breathe in me. Yea, Lord, cleanse my heart. Fill me with the Holy Ghost. And come down and visit us now as we wait before Thee. And we consider the word that Thou hast given. Hear and answer prayer. And we'll give Thee the praise, we pray, this for Christ's sake and for His glory. Amen and amen. So Exodus 12 and the verse number 21. And let us hear the word of God. Then Moses called for all the elders of Israel and said unto them, Draw out and take you a lamb according to your families and kill the Passover. And ye shall take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and strike the lintel and the two side posts with the blood that is in the basin, and none of you shall go out at the door of his house until the morning. For the Lord will pass through to smite the Egyptians, and when he seeth the blood upon the lintel and on the two side posts, the Lord will pass over the door, and will not suffer the destroyer to come in unto your houses to smite you. And ye shall observe this thing for an ordinance to thee and to thy sons forever. And it shall come to pass, when ye become to the land which the Lord will give you, according as He hath promised, that ye shall keep this service. And it shall come to pass, when your children shall say unto you, What mean ye by this service? Then ye shall say, It is the the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, Who passed over the houses of the children of Israel in Egypt when he smote the Egyptians and delivered our houses, and the people bowed the head and worshipped. And the children of Israel went away and did as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so did they. And it came to pass that at midnight the Lord smote all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh. That sat on his throne unto the firstborn of the captive that was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of cattle. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants, and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where there was not one dead. Amen. The Lord will bless the reading of his word to all of our hearts. In this chapter, there is a central topic that unites the entire content that the chapter records for us and sets before us, and that topic to which I refer is Israel's exodus from Egypt. It can be truly said without any shadow of doubt that the exodus was the single greatest event to take place in Israel's Old Testament history. It was an event that was preceded and executed and also accompanied by a supreme demonstration of the supernatural power of God. On the matter of the revelation of God's faithfulness to His covenant promises, the exodus from Egypt was the pattern thereafter for all other deliverances that Israel experienced. And therefore, for these reasons, the Exodus is alluded to in every section of the Old Testament literature. You'll find it mentioned, of course, here in the Law. You'll find it referred to in the Prophets. You'll find it also referred to in the Psalms, and I refer to the Psalms in the sense of all the poetical uh, writings of the Old Testament. And the New Testament also refers to the Exodus on many, many occasions, and sometimes in a fashion that indicates that this event was truly ingrained in the minds of God's people. And for example, we think of Luke chapter 9, verses 30 and 31, and there we are informed that on the Mount of Transfiguration, Moses and Elijah appeared. And they spoke with Christ about His coming death. And you will find that in that passage, Luke deliberately uses the Greek word Exodus. That is a Greek word. The very title of this book is a Greek word Exodus. But he deliberately uses that Greek word Exodus as he wrote about the subject of the conversation of Moses and Elijah. They were speaking of the Lord's death, but they called it His exodus. In our translation it says, "decease," but the word is actually exodus. Now that detail concerning the death of the Lord being described as His exodus is very important because it focuses our minds on the nature of the death of Jesus Christ. His death was His exodus. In Matthew 26, 28 we have the Lord speak of His death as He instituted what we call the Lord's Supper. And He referred there to His death as the sealing of the covenant of grace by the shedding of His blood. Many of you will know that verse. He said, This cup is the New Testament in my blood, which is shed for many. And He's speaking, therefore, of the covenant, and He refers to His death, and He speaks of it as the sealing of of the covenant of grace by the shedding of His blood. Now, in that reference that our Lord, uh, in that statement that our Lord made there in Matthew 26:28, there is a reference to the event and to the time of the Exodus when the Passover was offered up unto God. And therefore, in a true sense, the Exodus revolved around the central feature of, of the passover in fact there would have been no exodus from egypt except for the fact uh, that the passover was observed and the passover sacrifice was actually made israel went out of egypt therefore based on the shedding of blood in the sacrifice of the passover lamb and that is verified that the whole event refers to Christ's death. That is verified by Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 5 and verse number 7, words of great significance. Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. And so in the light of all those details, the Passover stands prominently in this chapter, Exodus 12, that records the Exodus from Egypt. It can and it must be said that the Passover is much more than an historical aspect of the account of the Exodus. Instead, it holds a very, very vital, a very, very doctrinal message for us. And that message, of course, is the message of the gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That means that as we read about the Exodus that governs this chapter, and we find that the Passover is central to the Exodus, that all means that the Passover has vital instruction for sinners who need an Exodus out of their sin, who are yet in the bondage of their sin. Remember that for Israel, that's what the Exodus was all about. It was God bringing them out of the house of bondage, out of their slavery, out of all that they were enthralled by, or all that they were uh, enslaved by in those years gone by. It's God bringing them out, and God brought them out in their Exodus on the basis of what happened in the Passover. The Passover took place on the very same night as the Exodus took place. And therefore, you can't understand the exodus, and you cannot deal with the exodus unless you see it in relation to the Passover. And so, to those in this gathering this evening who are yet in their sin, you not only are in bondage to that sin, but you need to be saved from the divine sentence that your sin incurs, that bring that sin, that that that, that's, that penalty that sin brings upon you. And therefore, if you are to be saved from that sin and the judgment that sin will bring, you can only be saved by fleeing to Jesus Christ the Son of God, as He is set before you in the Passover sacrifice. And of course, He set before you in many, many other ways throughout the Bible. But tonight we're thinking about the Passover, the central aspect of the Exodus. And we're looking here at the great message that you who are enslaved by sin and lost in sin and under the sentence of death, and facing the awful wrath of God, and the curse that will come because of sin. You need to think about what is presented to you about Christ and His death and His saving power in this marvelous aspect of the whole scene in Exodus 12, namely the Passover. I want to bring your attention really to verse 23 as a kind of a text, although I'll be looking and other verses in the chapter and in related chapters. But verse 23 says this, For the Lord will pass through to smite the Egyptians, and when He saith the blood upon the lintel and on the two side posts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not suffer the destroyer to come in unto your houses to smite you. Now in that verse, There's a threefold view of the Lord on the night of the Exodus when the Passover was killed and when Israel departed from Egypt. And that's why I want to handle that verse. A threefold view of God is brought before us in these words that contains this threefold view. It contains solemn truth for your soul. I address those who are lost, who are guilty, who are on the road to ruin, who are in bondage to sin and the world and the the devil, and the powers of darkness, and you're heading on the wrong road in life, and you have been for many, many years perhaps, or a young person setting out in life, and the world is drawing and sin is alluring, and you don't seem to realize the danger that you're in and the escape that you need, the exodus that you need, out of your bondage and your slavery and your danger, and it's found only in God's Passover lamb. So be, a, be a alarmed tonight, sinner, and be alerted to the fact of your need to escape from the wrath to come. What do we see about God in this, in this verse? Three views of God, as I want to entitle the, the, the subject tonight, on which I want to address you. Number one, there is the Lord in his confrontation. The Lord in his confrontation. Note the opening words of this verse 23 For the Lord will pass through to smite the Egyptians. And those words reveal that the Lord purposed to, to pass through Egypt that night to confront sinners in Egypt about their sin. In Scripture, there is much said about divine confrontation, the confrontation of God with regard to individuals and even nations, as we find it here in Exodus chapter 12, because these words speak of God passing through to smite, to smite the Egyptians. And men and women, that's confrontation, and that's God confronting the sinner. That's the imagery there. That's the message there at this particular point. The Lord in His confrontation, as He passes through to smite those who are in the land of Egypt. And I tell you tonight, God is still in that business. When sinners linger on and sinners sinners delay and refuse and become more rebellious and more deep-dyed in sin and more stubborn in their impenitence, there comes a moment When God will pass through, God will smite and God will cut off the impenitent and rebellious sinner. And therefore, the word smite is a vital word. If you turn back quickly to Exodus 11 and verse number 1, and remember that in Exodus 12, What has been spoken of there is the death of the firstborn that speaks of God coming to smite. And in Exodus 11, verse number 1, we read these words. They're very important words. They are related to what I'm showing you. The Lord said unto Moses, Yet will I bring one plague more upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. And the reference is to this plague of the death of the firstborn. But in Exodus 11, verse 1, you have the noun form of the verb that means to smite or to plague. And so, back in chapter 12 and verse 23, you can read it this way. The Lord will pass through to plague the Egyptians. It's the final plague. It's a plague by which... The firstborn in every every Egyptian home is going to be smitten. Ah, my friend, terrible language, serious language. Would we ever want to think about that? That God would come maybe to your home tonight or the homes of people across our town and across our land and they will be smitten dead in their sins. And yet it's happening all the time. They are going to reap the plague. The smiting of God because of their impenitence and their sin. In verse, in chapter 11 again, just look at verse number 5. And notice what it says there. It says, And all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. And just focus on those words. The death sentence was on all the firstborn. Now that really got my attention. And I began to look at this carefully. Because if you turn to chapter 12, verse number 13 now, notice what it says in that verse. Chapter 12, 13. And the blood shall be to you for a token upon the houses where ye are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the plague shall not be upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt. You know what I discovered there as I read this? I discovered that God's Plague would have smitten the Israelites as well as the Egyptians. That might be something over which I've never thought before, but it's true. You see, my dear friend, the Israelites were sinners just like the Egyptians. There's no difference between men. Oh, the Israelites had a great history from Abraham on down. And they were looked on by many, perhaps, these are God's people, but they were sinners. And as we compare those verses, we are discovering that the plague, the smiting that was going to come that night and the death of the firstborn was actually threatened against them. And yet we find that the Israelites were spared. And they were spared for a certain reason. And the reason basically is this they were spared because of the grace of God. What is it that constitutes the difference between people? Some, some are saved and go to heaven, some are lost and go to hell. What constitutes the difference? I asked that question for a certain reason. If you look again in chapter 11 at verse number 7 this time, and notice the, the closing words of that verse, which are these, that ye may know, note this, my friend, that ye may know how that the Lord doth put a difference between the Egyptians and Israel. And so there's a statement that's very important. The Lord puts a difference, we're told, and this has to do with this night, this Exodus night, and this night of the Passover. And, and, and they're being told, the Lord put a difference between the Egyptians and Israel. And actually the word difference means separation. The Lord put a separation between the Egyptians and Israel. And here's the final plague about to come. It's the sentence of death but it's not going to fall upon the firstborn of Israel because the Lord puts a difference between them and the Egyptians. And I'm saying to you that what constitutes that difference is the grace of God. The Israelites were not spared. In other words, they were not smitten because of any merit that they supposedly had because they were guilty as the Egyptians were. They had no righteousness of their own, as is always true. No matter who it is or when people live, no man has the righteousness or the merit or the spiritual value or spiritual acumen that will cause God to say, I'll spare that man because look at him. He's different from him because he has some merit value. No, my friend, God never sees that because that is not true. You see, there are sinners who think that they're going to be spared in the day of death or whatever, because they think that they have merit with God, that they have value before God, that they have worked up some kind of a righteousness before God. But the Bible tells us that all men are the same. All men are unrighteous. You know, we hear a lot today about what's happening in Israel and Gaza. And you'll hear preachers say, we need, to pray, we need to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. And the Bible says that. What does that mean? Does it mean that the Israelites will be spared because they are different or better from other people? No. The peace of Jerusalem is the peace of the gospel. And we're to pray that Jews and Arabs or whoever will all come to know the same Christ, the same Savior. There are evangelical people who think, and I have nothing against Jews, by the way, but they think that because they're Jews, they have some monopoly upon God and God's bound to spare them, or whatever. My dear friend, there is no difference, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And if you look at Israel in this whole scene here, and then look a little later on at what you find in Joshua 24, and I'll just read it to you. Joshua 24, verse 14 It says this, Now therefore fear the Lord and serve Him in sincerity and in truth. And listen carefully. Put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the flood and in Egypt. Do you notice that? The Israelites were idolaters when they lived in Egypt. They had turned to other gods when they lived in Egypt. So how, on what basis did God spare them on the basis of grace. And I could go to other verses that show the very same thing. In other words, Israel, they deserved to be in bondage in Egypt. They had no merit to cause God to favor them. And you see, their bondage in Egypt is a picture of the spiritual bondage of every human being. All are born in sin. All are held under sin's dominion. All are incapable of setting themselves free. Just like the Egyptians were so much in bondage, there was no way out by their own strength, by their own effort, by their own power. God had to step in. God had to intervene. God had to deliver them, and He did so by His marvelous grace. And so, what do you find, therefore? The Passover, the Passover was instituted on the basis of grace alone because the gospel pictured in the Passover it stands upon that basis. It is conveyed to us through the grace of God and by the merit of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Passover stands in Scripture, therefore, as a reminder that when men are confronted by God for sin, the only reason... The only reason why any are ever saved is because of grace. Now, sinner, get it clear tonight into your mind. The grace of God made the difference. And the grace of God was demonstrated on that night when God came to confront Egyptians and Israelites both for their sin And the grace of God provided a ransom in which the Israelite, yes, believed and trusted. And on that foundation or that ground alone, he was saved from the death of the firstborn. Let me tell you, friend, that God's confrontation of sinners is righteous. Do you understand what I have just said? It says there in Romans the judgment of God is according to truth. And therefore, being according to truth, or righteous in other words, God properly confronts people about their sins. This final plague was the culmination of a whole series of plagues which were warnings from God that had been ignored and had been, and had been refused by the Egyptians. And in that sense, the Egyptians stand as a warning uh, for every sinner in this gathering tonight. The Egyptians saw the power of God. They saw all those different plagues, the previous plagues, leading up to the tenth plague, the death of the firstborn. They saw them. They viewed them. They were actually caught up in them. And yet they refused to repent. They were just like Pharaoh, their leader. They hardened their hearts. They hardened their hearts. And therefore, they were swept away. And so, when God came to confront them that night about their sin, it was indeed a righteous confrontation. It was also a confrontation that was revealing. And it's revealing for this reason. And that is, God confronts sinners to reveal the hopelessness of every false refuge And as I look at the Egyptians and what happened that night, you know what I find? I find that when God came to smite them for their sin, for their impenitence, for their hardness, for their rebellion, for their refusal of all that He was showing them, He vented His smiting, His plagues against their gods. Do you ever note that? Look here in Exodus 12, verse number 12. The Lord says, I will pass through the land of Egypt this night and will smite all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt. I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. And that's a very striking thing because if you think about all the plagues, the plague of turning the water into blood, the River Nile became a river of blood. There are two things that I want you to think about. It was in that river that many and many a little Israelite's boy was drowned. And later on, the judgment of God begins to fall on Egypt for the infanticide, as you call it, the death of those infants. That's one thing. But then there's another one. The Egyptians worshipped the river Nile. It was one of their gods. They are what you call pantheists. They had many gods. They worshipped the Nile. They worshipped the fly. They worshipped the frog. And on on it goes. And God came and He smote every one of their gods. And therefore, God's confrontation of men and their sin not only is righteous, it's revealing in that it reveals the great, the solemn fact that there's no religion, no matter what it is. thought thought here about the religion of the, of, the, of the Egyptians and their religion. Their gods didn't save them. Their gods were smitten and swept away, so to speak. And my dear friend, there's no religion that offers you any, re- any refuge any salvation, any escape from the wrath of God. I don't know what your religion is. You see, every man has a religion. Every man has something that he believes. You talk about the atheist, uh, or we refer to the atheist, and the atheist tries to present the idea, I don't have any religion. I don't believe there is a God. But you know who his God is? Himself. He worships himself. He puts himself up on a pedestal and he says, I am so great. I am so mighty. I am so smart. And I know there's no God, but I'm really my own God. And I'm out for me. And I'm out to promote me. That's the religion of the atheist. That's what he worships, self. And so I could keep on going here, but... You see, you might be one who calls yourself a good Protestant and you believe that being a good Protestant, whatever that's supposed to be, gives you some kind of favor with God and that God's bound to be pleased with you because you might be a member of the orders or you might do this, that, and the other thing and you believe that's going to get you into heaven. There are people who believe that my dear friend, that holds no that holds no degree of acceptance for you with a holy God. Because the way into heaven is not on that basis. Or you might say, "Well, I read the Bible." And you know you might even say, "I've started to read it. I never read it for years, I and mean, we never read it ever, and now I've started to read my Bible. Surely God's happy, not with me now. Surely He loves me now. Look at that exercise I'm doing every day. I'm sitting down to read some verses or I'm getting down at night to say my prayers. And I haven't said my prayers since my mother taught me at her knee. Ah, my friend, I don't know what you're saying sitting there tonight in your seat, but if you're saying any of these things, you're dead wrong. Because it will not earn you one iota of favor with Almighty God. And therefore, God's confrontation of sinners is not only righteous, it's because of their sin. It is revealing. It reveals the uselessness of the religious performances in which people trust that they keep on performing. And it gains them no merit with God. How revealing that is. God's confrontation of sinners is also relentless. Look at verse 29 of Exodus 12. It says, It came to pass that at midnight the Lord smote all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh that sat on the throne, or his throne, onto the firstborn of the captive that was in the dungeon. And what we're told here is that the Lord smote. When he smote, the stroke of death touched every home, and it touched every class and it penetrated every dwelling. And you know, the words in verse 29 actually give us to believe, to see and believe that the smiting, the stroke, fell simultaneously. It wasn't that the Lord went to this house and dealt with it and then went to that house and dealt with it. No, it happened simultaneously. The Lord swept away a multitude in one stroke. It is relentless. It is awful. The confrontation of God as He takes up dealings with sinners, as He moves against sinners. My friend, you're in awful danger. In danger of been swept away, your soul been lost. But move on with me quickly here. The Lord, not only in His confrontation, but the Lord in His consideration. Notice the words in verse 23, these words, when he saith the blood upon the lintel and the two side posts. Notice those wonderful words, when he saith the blood. Compare verse number 13, where he had spoken already about this, and there he says, when I see the blood. And there's a divine act of consideration, considering that which is trusted, Trusted in by the sinner to escape the divine wrath. Remember what I said earlier? The Israelites were uh, just as much in danger of the firstborn being smitten in their homes as the Egyptians. And now the Lord said, Here's the thing. Here's what I want to see. When I see the blood, what does he see? The evidence of sacrifice. That's what he sees. The blood in view is the blood of the Passover lamb offered up in sacrifice to God. The Passover was a sacrifice in essence. I mean here in Exodus 12, verse 27 tells you it refers there to the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. Let me say to you tonight, dear sinner, if there to be any mercy for you, then the divine eye must find the sacrifice. That's what the Lord's looking for, is there to be any escape. He says, when I see the blood. The Lord's looking for the blood. All that that means, all that that signifies. When the sacrifice is in view, you see, when He says, I see the blood, that means that the substitute has died. That means that the price for sin has been paid. That means that the one who looks... The one who has that divine eye and who looks and who says, when I see, and he says, when I see the blood, and then says, I will not smite that house. What's he saying? Not only does he see the evidence of the substitute and the evidence of the price paid, but he's saying, I see that which evidences the satisfaction of my justice. Brethren and sisters, men and women tonight, especially the unsaved here, recognize that the only way to peace with God, the only way to acceptance and to pardon is by the sacrifice of a substitute. That is the divine requirement. And Christ is that sacrifice. And Christ in His death, that atoning death, oh, that once and for all sacrifice. For that's what the Bible calls it that once and for all sacrifice, it alone satisfies divine justice. That's what the Lord says. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. He's expressing all of that. He's expressing that He considers the evidence of the sacrifice and is satisfied and death does not fall. And again, you can see, can't you see it? The Israelites would also have been smitten that night, but for the blood. It's also the evidence of saving faith. Because he says, when I see the blood, and in the divine view, the blood of the sacrifice is seen. And where is it? It's seen on the side pulse. It's seen on the lentils of every Israelite's home. And the application of the blood to those parts of their homes was done in obedience to the divine instruction. The Lord had given that instruction. As you can see right down through this chapter, I need not read any particular verse. It's here plainly and clearly and powerfully. And therefore the Lord is he's saying, when I see the blood, I actually see that that in that house, that home, and that home, and that home, right across, they are, they are in obedience to my command, to my directive. My friend, that's the obedience of faith, and I'm sure you've heard it before, there's that particular house, for example, and inside it there's a young boy, a young fellow, whatever age. And he's heard the message that the Lord's passing through this night. And every house will be smitten, or every, the firstborn in every house will be smitten where there's no blood applied. And he says to his father, Did you apply the blood? Was the blood applied to your doorposts, our doorposts? I'm in danger. Father, I'm in danger. I've been smitten by the plague. And the Father tells him, Son, we've obeyed God's guidance and instruction, and the blood is applied, and the young fellow believes it. And therefore, when God sees the blood, it's the evidence of the saving faith that's exercised And you see, the point is, all of that, that happened, the the, the Passover lamb, the, the death of it, the shedding of its blood, the application of the blood, that's all pointing to Christ. It wasn't the blood of a little lamb that actually saved that young lad. It's the blood of the one to whom that little lamb pointed. That's always true. Israelites or anybody else in Old Testament days were saved by faith like sinners today. They heard the gospel. They saw it presented and moved. They believed. They trusted in the coming Redeemer. My friend, that is basic biblical theology. That's the theology of the Old Testament pointing away to God's Lamb and they were really, therefore, trusting in the blood of incarnate deity. And therefore, God considered all that. And He says, When I see the blood, I'll pass over. And that brings me to my final thought. The Lord in His consolation, God in His confrontation, God in His consideration, God in His consolation. It says, the Lord will pass over the door and will not suffer the destroyer to come into your houses to smite you. And therefore, the consolation was and is tonight for believing souls that you will come to Christ that when the judgment hour arrives, at death, Or the final judgment, you will not be smitten. Think about that. Death is hastening on. That is a judgment in itself. To be cut off, taken away, as we all will. But remember, friend, there are only two ways in which men die. They they either die in their sins or they die covered by the blood of Christ. Yes, they're still sinners, but they're under the blood. And so I ask you tonight, how will you die? In what manner will you die? Will you die covered with the blood of Jesus or will you die in your sins? Your sins uncovered, fully exposed to the wrath of God and your soul immediately plunging into hell and into everlasting damnation. That's what the Bible teaches. And the great consolation for the trusting soul is when we trust in Christ, when we rest in Him, then the Lord gives us the assurance, I will pass over the door, the destroying angel will not smite you. You will be saved. You're saved now if you trust in Christ, and you'll be saved at death, and you go out unto God's eternity to go immediately to be with the Lord. Ah, my friend, that's wonderful. Can you say tonight this, the way the old hymn puts it? Other refuge have I none. Hangs my helpless soul on thee. Can you say that? That Christ and Christ alone is your refuge. That His precious blood is that in which you're trusting. Remember what the Bible says? The blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son cleanseth from all sin. Redeemed by the blood, justified by the blood. It keeps on going. Every major doctrine is associated inseparably so with Christ's blood. And therefore, if your hope is not in Christ, you have no justification, you have no cleansing. You have no peace with God. You're an unpardoned, guilty sinner. And you have no consolation in which to rejoice. Sweeping through the gates of the New Jerusalem, washed in the blood of the Lamb. Christ's righteousness imputed to your account, given a legal acceptance with God, a peace with Him. You may have heard of a great American preacher of the last century, Gratian Machin, a man who's a tremendous theologian and a great preacher. <clears throat> you know, when he came to die, you know what his last words were? Thank God for the righteousness of Christ. He didn't say, I thank God, I have taught theology, or I have preached, or I have done whatever. He said, thank God for Christ's righteousness. Dear sinner, you need to be saved from your sin, from the curse of the law. From the wrath of God. And it's Christ alone who will save you. Let us bow in prayer. Let us just come quietly and reverently now in these closing moments, please, and just bowing together and considering what we have looked at, and especially those who need the Lord, those who are lost and yet in their sin and I, as it were, offer myself to you tonight. On Mr. Sturt's behalf, I offer his help too in terms of counsel and opening up the Word and showing you God's way. We want to be of help. Do not hesitate to seek out that help We'll be down at the door now. Don't try to slip out some other door. Come faces and say tonight, Preacher, I need, I need to get saved. Will you help me? Will you point me to the Lamb? And it will be our delight. Let's just pray that sinner take up that challenge. Father, we pray that the Holy Ghost will do his marvelous work, and that sinners here this evening are will be drawn to thy son and be saved from the wrath to come. O Lord, have mercy, and reach down and save. And work and power we pray. The part is with thy blessing. We ask in Jesus' name and for Jesus' sake. Amen.